I'm going to be reading verse 3 and 5 and 6 and uh, 16. A portion of verse 3 begins this way. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Everybody shout King David. David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Everybody go, ooh. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Shout amen. amen. Please be seated. For the last few weeks, I've been making the distinction between the civic Christmas that we celebrate as a nation, because Christmas is an official holiday in the United States, and the holy day that Christians celebrate uh, as a community. It's one of our great holy days. I've said to you that the sacred day of Christmas is anchored in the birth and life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the beginning, his coming. And the civic Christmas is really anchored in the themes that flow out of that. But they have two different messages. We've been trying to unpack the answer to the question, how do I go about living a life of joy, a happy life, as a norm, not 100% of the time, but, but, but as my permanent disposition? And I think that Christmas has everything to do with trying to help us to answer that question. And one of the things that we've learned so far is that joy and happiness, uh, they are byproducts, if you will, of three things. Of one, recognizing the wonder of God around us. We did a lot of talking about this last week. Two, of hearing and believing the good news that comes from this. The angel says, behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy to come to all the people. And thirdly, to recognize, and this is kind of the big ideal for this message today, to just be aware of the grace of God flowing through and around our lives. That if you can be aware of how God's grace is interacting with your life, a byproduct of that will be joy. Greater joy than what you currently have. Now, I wanted to look at Matthew because... Matthew is really picking up this point about the good news. And he starts to communicate the good news that comes through the birth of Jesus Christ with the genealogy. Now, let's be honest. Most of us, when we come to a genealogy in Scripture, if we read it uh, fairly regularly, when we hit the genealogy, let's just be honest, we skip it. <laughs> Lots of names, barely can pronounce the name, not sure what the names are. What in the world does it have to do, do, do they have to do with anything in the world anyway? Let's just kind of skip that, get to the narrative. 
Matthew is making an extraordinarily important point with this genealogy. The first point he's making, uh, by the way, uh, I went to see Rogue One. That's the new Star Wars movie, by the way, if you don't know. Uh, on Friday, I actually saw it twice. <laughs> so Friday morning with our pastoral team, and I saw it Friday evening with my best. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. Most of the Star Wars movie starts with that opening line, in a galaxy far, far away. Which is another way of kind of saying, once upon a time. Which is another way of suggesting, this is a fable, this is a fairy tale, it's not actually true. Matthew is making a point by starting with this genealogy that Jesus, the birth of Jesus is good news because it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It is not a once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. What Matthew is saying by starting with the genealogy is that the birth of Jesus is grounded in history. What he's essentially saying is he was born, it happened, check the record. That's what he's saying. So the genealogy begins by announcing the good news. The birth of Jesus is a historical event. The second thing about the genealogy, not so much in what it says, but in what it displays, is it answers the question, what's so good about the good news? I ask the person next to you, say, hey, what's your name? Ask them, say, hey, what's your name? <laughs> Tell me what your name is. Tell them what my name is. <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Then, then, then say, I've got a question to ask you. Tell them, what's so good about the good news? Ask them, come on. All right. If somebody asks you that question, here's what I want you to say back to them. Say, I'm, sh I I'm glad you asked. Tell them. <laughs> By starting with this genealogy, Matthew is trying to answer the question. He's laying it bare for you. He's showing you. He's not just telling you. He's showing you what's so good about the good news. Now, I, you've heard me say this before if you've been around for a while, uh, especially in the previous series, that Matthew, written first and foremost to the Jewish community, is arguing that Jesus is Messiah and that Jesus is king. So it's in Matthew chapter 2 where you'll find the Magi coming in and saying, where is he born the king of the Jews? Matthew chapter 5, for example, uh, the Beatitudes is the demands of the kings being laid out. When Jesus is on the cross in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he reminds us that written above his head is a sign that says, Jesus, king of the Jews. When Jesus rises from the dead in the final chapter, uh, final verses of the book of Matthew, he reminds us that Jesus said, uh, all authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. And that's Matthew's way of saying, listen, Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the king. Everybody shout king. king. Now, here's what's significant about genealogies as it relates to king back, back in the day that um, Jesus was born. Genealogies served as the resume for the king. Now, for most of us today, when we think about our resume, we're an individualistic society. Our resumes are focused on 
what school we graduate, what degrees we have, what accomplishments we've, uh, we, we've been able to accomplish. Baze, baze. In the day that Jesus was born, everything was much more communal. So it very much reflected the time that I grew up in. If I went down the street to some, across town to some little girl's house to, to, to take them to get a, some ice cream or something, and the parents, if they didn't know me, the first thing they would say is, what's your name? So I'd tell them my name. The second thing they would ask is, who's your mama? <laughs> or who's your daddy? Right? right? Or who's your uncle or your aunt? They'll just keep asking that. I got my uncle here, by the way. Uh, he knows that we grew up here. Can we celebrate my, 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 my only uncle? Praise God. Good to have him here. Bless you. Good. Sitting right next to my sister. So, 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 so he knows that we all grew up together. He, 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 he knew this, that in Cushada, that's what happened. They said, who's your mama, your daddy, your uncle, your aunt? And, 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 and if, if your mama or your family had a good reputation, the assumption was that the values of those, of your, of your, of your family were your values. So they were essentially say something like this. He's all right. He comes from good people. So that, that's, that's, what the gene, that's, that's how the genealogy was designed to work. That when a king got ready to present himself, he would lay out his resume be, and, and with, the, with the expectation that people would conclude, of course he should be king. He comes from good people. So most kings had in their resumes lots of good This is why Jesus' resume is stunning. It's shocking. It breaks all of the standards for the resume of the day. All right? The first thing that's unique about Jesus' resume uh, that anchors his kingship, that, that kind of reflects his family, was that it had five. Everybody say five. Five women in it. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, unnamed but identified, and Mary. Five women. Back in that day, royalty would rarely, if ever, include women in their resume. In a kind of sense, they were saying women weren't good enough. So you might think about the women as gender outsiders. And yet, Jesus had five included in his resume. People started scratching their heads. And then, it's the stories of the women that really is shocking. You could take any one of their stories and just drop it into any of these contemporary cable shows today. <laughs> and you'd hit the highest ratings. Alright, let me prove it. It's shocking. Let me prove it. Tamar. He could have just said that Judah was the father uh, of, 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 of Zerah, but uh, of Perez. That would have been sufficient. But he said, but he's also 
father of Zerah, whose mother is Tamar. Those who are familiar with Jewish history, suddenly scandal pops up. Because they remember that Tamar, first of all, there was a huge injustice done to her in the larger story. But what most folk will remember is that she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. That was incestuous. And, 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 and incest was one of the, the worst moral breaches, as you could imagine. And yet this incestuous relationship is a part of Jesus' resume. is a part of his family. He doesn't cover it up. Then uh, there's Rahab. They would immediately remember that Rahab was a prostitute. That was her day job. Scandalous. And then Tamar and Rahab, they were Canaanite women. Ruth was a Moabite. Neither of these three were permitted or welcome in the temple or in the tabernacle. You can basically think of them as cultural outsiders or racial outsiders. They, they, in a sense, not good enough to be in the temple, in the tabernacle. They weren't Jewish, and yet they're in Jesus' resume. They're displayed as part of his family. Matter of fact, you might want to think of them, these five women, in a sense, they're all the mothers of Jesus. Mother, great-great-great-grandmother, great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Two Canaanites, one Moabite. Not welcome in the temple. In his resume. Messy stuff. Oh, here's the messiest of all. I like the way Matthew talks about King David. First of all, he gets you, he, 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 he kind of tricks you a little bit because he says, and then there was, the only person who has a title is David, King David. You can hear the, 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 the horns play when he said, trumpets play, King David. And, 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 you know, you go, boom, there it is right there. Yep, royalty. Okay, I get it now. That's why Jesus is born King. He got a king in his ancestors. But Matthew said, well, just keep, keep, keep reading. Because... Because power and influence reveals your nature, doesn't cover it up. So, so he said, keep reading. Watch how he says this. He says, <laughs> he says, uh, Obed, uh, son is Jesse. Jesse's son is David. David is the father of Solomon, whose mother used to be married to Uriah. Everybody go, ooh. See, because right there, David just slammed somebody. I mean, not David, Matthew slammed, and he wasn't slamming Bathsheba. He was slamming David because he was reminding the readers. The readers go, oh, I remember now. Yes, that, that when David started off uh, uh, as a fugitive running from Saul, he had 37 men that surrounded him. They were called the mighty men. They would risk their life day after day to keep him alive. One of those 37 men was a fellow by the name of Uriah. Years later, when David becomes king and consolidates the kingdom and wins all the battles, 
uh, he looks across and sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. David decides to sleep with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant. Then he has Uriah murdered in order to cover up the whole thing. I mean, David is an adulterer. I mean, all of a sudden you're just getting tripped out now. You say, oh my goodness. And you look at who David is and you add him to the prostitute and add him to the incestuous and then say, they're all a part of Jesus' family. Oh my goodness, my family don't look so bad after all. (laughs) But that's precisely the point. That's the point that Matthew is trying to drive home. Matthew, the question is, how did they get into Jesus' family? And Matthew has one answer, grace. Grace. Because at the end of the day, none of them, if you had to to say, which one of y'all live up to the law of God, they all would have been excluded. Oh, that's, that's what's good about the good news of Jesus. Folk that you think are excluded, if they can believe he said he is who he said he is, and they're willing to turn their lives over to him, here's the point. If all them folk could be in Jesus' family, you can too. And then what I like about it is that most of us in our family, we try to cover up the message. Right? It's called family secrets. The incest, the adultery, we got it all in our family, right? The adultery, the incest, come on now, the murder, the lying, all that kind of stuff, right? Right? We try to cover it up. Don't put it out there. Don't make it look bad. But Jesus, Matthew said, no, I want to put it out there. Because he came to redeem families just like this one. These families, you're at the center of his heart. Now, here's the deal. So, the good news is that while we can't save ourselves, he can. Let me tell you a story. I was um, reading the other day, and I'm fascinated. This year, more than any other year that I can recall, there are a number of what they call secret Santas. And you know, we used to think of secret Santas at a party, kind of exchange small gifts, like $20 or less. But these secret Santas, they really are trying to change lives. There's, there's one fella who, you, you guys read about it, there's one fella who, who every year takes $100,000, turns in $100 bills, and he gives them out to unsuspecting people. This year he had the police to give it out. There's another story of a woman who uh, is in fourth stage cancer. Her insurance cut her off. She couldn't get treatment. She's confined to her bed. There was a knock at the door. There were some vegetables in the bag. They got the vegetable out. They found a piece of paper. They pulled it out. It was a check for $10,000 to pay for her treatments. True story. Let's give God a hand phrase. That's amazing. This is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorites. This is happening all over the place. This particular uh, episode that I'm about to share from Missouri all the way to Pennsylvania. People are uh, reporting these episodes. Uh, this particular one. In Pennsylvania, a fella sent a check for $50,000 into a Walgreens, a Walmart. 
to pay off everybody who was on layaway. It was over 200. Now, okay, some of you young people, somebody's asking, what's layaway? Before credit cards, and before some of us could get credit cards, we always had layaway. Layaway, when I grew up, my mom would do this all the time. She'd go to Sears, she'd go to JCPenney, she'd go to uh, uh, Walmart, come on. And she'd find a bicycle or she'd find something that she wanted, and she couldn't afford it. So, so she'd get it, and, 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 and they would say she would lay it away. In other words, they'd take it, they, they, they would take it and put it away. And she would pay a little something down on it. And then every week she'd pay a little bit. 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 Until she got it off a layaway. Everybody say layaway. I just love it. I love it. I love it. So here's one of the stories. Here's one of the stories. I'm talking about what's so good about the gospel, y'all. Here's one of the stories. Here's one of the stories. So the woman came home, right? And so her daughter was waiting at the top of the stairs. Said, Mom. You got a lot of voicemails. I happen to listen to voicemails, and you need to come up here. There's a voicemail for you I, I want you to listen to. And the mom said, is it going to make me mad? <laughs> and, and, and the daughter said, no, it's going to make you cry. And she went up and listened, and the store called her to tell her. Some anonymous stranger doesn't know you, doesn't know your address, doesn't know whether you're good or bad doesn't know your race, doesn't know your political party, doesn't know where you got kids or no kids, doesn't know where you got sin in your life. Just some anonymous person has just wiped out your debt. And, 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 and she left there crying. Now, now, here's the point. Here's the point. And these episodes are happening all over the country. Here's the point. If broken human beings can find enough love in our hearts, to walk into a Walmart and pay off everybody's account. Where do you think they got that from? Come on now. Isn't the God of creation more loving than the, collect- the collectiveness of humanity? Isn't it? Wouldn't it make sense? Come on now. Because most of us live our lives on layaway. Come on now. Our sins and our regrets and our guilt that we carry with us. And we try to pay it off little bit by little bit. Come on. But just when we think we're going to pay it off, we mess up again. But Jesus shows up. That's the message of Christmas. Gives his life and sheds his blood and declares, if you believe in me and if you repent, I'll pay the whole thing off. Wow. Before I turn over a new leaf, before I pick up a new ethic, before I join a community, what brings me into the family of Jesus is not what I do. It's what he's done for me. And all I have to do is believe it. Paul writes this way. God saved us. Ephesians 2.8. God saved us. New Living Translation. God saved us with his grace. And we can't take any credit I'm a part of Jesus' family not because of what I do, but because of what he did. I got there the same way that everybody else in that lineage got there. Somebody shout grace. All right, right, so now, so it's by grace 
that I'm saved. I'm in the family. So on a bad day, I met somebody in the lobby today. He said, you just don't know how important this was because my family excluded me. They, they cut me out. I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. But isn't it good news to know that Jesus cut you in? You ought to saw the tears running down his face. Shout good news. Good news, good news, good news. Anybody can be a part of Jesus' family. Saves us by his grace. All right, here's, here's, here's the last part I'm trying to get to, though. But the same grace, watch this, also delivers us from what I call the tyranny of the alt. O-U-G-H-T. Alt. Everybody say alt. You ought to have. You ought to be. You ought to have done. You ought to have not done. How many of us are living under the ought? King Herod, when he got ready to work on his genealogy, he purged it. He wiped everybody out that looked messy because he was trying to fit a picture of what folks said he ought to be. Well, verse 16, this is where I am. I, I just noticed this in the last 24 hours. I was watching this. I've read this text for years, but it jumped out at me. Verse 16 says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Something was familiar about that. Jacob was the father of Joseph. It looked like I've seen that somewhere. Then I remembered. Forty generations earlier, there's another father and son team. You remember, Jacob, the, 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 the one of the 12 patriarchs who would become the head of the 12 tribes. Jacob, his 11th son was named Joseph. And you remember how Joseph was a, he was a bad brother. Come on now. He, 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 he got thrown into slavery, but God's favor was so on his life, he rose to the top. They messed on him and lied on him and got him thrown into prison. But God's favor was so much on his life, he rose to the top. And then before it was all over, he rose all the way to the top, became the second in command of Egypt, the most powerful nation at that time in the world. So I was just wondering. I, I had never seen this. Because Joseph in verse 16, whose father is Jacob, was a carpenter. His name means to multiply, to increase. It, it suggests a certain degree of success. I, I just wonder whether or not, because Joseph's, in verse 16, father was named Jacob, I just wonder whether or not people around him were saying to him, you know what? Because your dad is the same name of the patriarch, you ought to be more than a carpenter. 
you know, in verse 13, chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 55, it says, when Jesus started performing miracles, showed up in his hometown, they said, wait a moment, who this fella? Isn't his father a carpenter? I wonder did Joseph feel the pressure of the alt? I, I, I ended here, listen. I read in Times Magazine the other day, a woman by the name of uh, uh, Dr. Catherine Hamilton Warren. She is a PhD doctor at uh, University of Texas. Here's what she wrote. She says that when she was just graduated from college in 1999, she said to a friend of hers, talking about good news, talking about joy, happiness, I'm not ambitious. She was signaling that she was kind of discontent with her life. Her friend, whose name is Ben, replied, I don't know most people who sign up for Peace Corps, serve several years in Peace Corps, get out, apply for several PhDs. I don't know most people who do that that's not ambitious. So he's kind of saying, I'm kind of confused. Ten years later, she's now a PhD teaching her literature students and she says something to them. She says to them, I'm not as successful as my parents and the peers who graduated with me. I'm not even as successful as I think I ought to be. The students were confounded by this. They said, but you are a college professor. You're teaching one of the top 20 programs in the country. What do you mean, Dr. Warren? And she says, I didn't say to them, but what I meant was, yes, I'm a professor, but I'm a little P professor. I'm not the big P professor. See, the capital P professor, that's the one with tenure, written books, make a lot of money. The little P professor, no tenure, no books, make decent money. She says, I was tortured by the feeling that I ought to do more. I wonder if there's anybody in here like that, being tortured by the feeling that you ought to be doing more. I, I wonder was that Jacob, verse 16, Jacob. I wonder, was that, I wonder, was he tortured by the feeling that, that, that based on his namesake, based on his place in the genea, that perhaps he ought to be doing more. And then finally, Dr. Warren, she just kept thinking and working through. She says, here how I used to talk to myself. She says, watch this. She says, I, I would say, I ought to do more academic writing, even though I found academic writing boring. She said, I ought to apply for research jobs that will put me on a tenure track, even though I didn't want any job that would make teaching secondary. She said, but, 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 but I ought. I ought to start climbing the, 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 the academic food chain even though I, I, I love the city that I'm in and the job that I have, what is this schizophrenia going on in her? And later she, 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 she disclosed it as this. She was trying to live up to what her mama thought she should be doing. 
She was trying to live up to what her colleagues said. You are given your pedigree, given, given your education, given who we are. Come on, you ought. And even though she was happy where she was, she couldn't enjoy the happiness because she was living under the tyranny of somebody else's ought. Who in here fits that? I wonder, was that Jacob? Living under the tyranny of somebody else's old. I wonder, are there some single folk here? You enjoy being single. And truth be told, you don't want anything to do with marriage. Truth be told, you're having a good time. Truth be told, and you live and save. Come on now, righteous. You're not just out there crazy. But because your mama and your, 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 your siblings say, you ain't married yet. You're starting to feel miserable about not being married and it's crowding out the joy that you actually, because the grace of God is working in your life. Who, who, who in here, who, who, who you, you're married, you're married to a good spouse, a spouse worth coming home to at night, but your boys are saying, oh, come on, man, she got you hooked. Man, come on, you can't come out and hang out with us. No. Man, you ought to be the man and be able to, you know, just show up at two in the morning. No, baby, don't be crazy. Who in here chose not to go to college? You chose to go a different route. Now you're driving a muni bus, or, or maybe, you're, maybe you're managing apartments and, and a, a real estate, or maybe, maybe you're just a, maybe, maybe you are a janitor, not just, you are a janitor, uh, maintaining facilities, making it possible for millions of dollars to happen because you're maintaining the facility. And, and, and really, truth be told, you're happy because you experience God's grace right where you are. But, but, but somebody's telling you, you know, with a mind like that, you ought. I had a friend, I'll end it here. I had a friend, true friend, a good friend of mine. Youngest child got in trouble, started being rebellious. They had to send him away to a boarding school that was a therapeutic boarding school. Several months, the therapist called for the parents to come in. They showed up, they wanted to figure out what's wrong with this boy. My friend said, he was so frustrated with his son because he was thinking, you know the gifts you've been given, the mind you got, the family that you're in? You're living beneath your privilege. What's wrong with you? You know, he's sending him to get some therapy, get some help. And so the parents went in. And the therapist just talked to the parents for a couple hours. Then the therapist says, okay, I, I got it. I know exactly what's wrong with the, your son. He says, you think your son lacks aspiration. It's not that he lacks aspiration. It is he's got too much aspiration. You see, your son looks at you, the daddy, and looks at all you have attained. Looks at the mama and all that you've attained. Looks at the siblings and all that they have attained. Looks at the crowd that you ride in. And he's trying to fit that picture. But because he's shaped differently, he doesn't fit that picture. And because he doesn't fit that picture, he keeps hearing, this is my word, the alts, the alts, the alts. And he's trying to reach an alt that he's not shaped to reach. And because he can't reach that alt, his life is plummeting in misery. So actually, the problem is not so much him, it's y'all. Uh, so let me just say to parents, be careful about what you dump on your kids. 
Be careful about the, about the alts you drop into their lives. Be careful about your broken dreams that you want them to live out. Be careful about the image you're trying to drive them into. Figure out what God is doing in their lives. Look for the grace of God in their lives. Affirm the grace of God in their lives. All right, let's go back. Watch this. We put a lot of emphasis on Mary, but Joseph got picked too. And when Jesus picked Joseph, he didn't say you have to change your occupation. When Jesus picked Joseph, he did not say you have to change your neighborhood. Because when he got it all straight, Joseph went back and raised Jesus in Nazareth, the ghetto town. Somebody said, can anything good come out? But, but what Joseph realized, y'all, is that when he discovered that God had picked him, he could have peace in Nazareth. And he could have peace with being a carpenter. Come on, and it's not just being a plumber and a carpenter. I know some doctors and some lawyers who can't live, who living under the alt in their lives. Come on now. And some millionaires who say, I alt. That's the comparison. Be careful when you compare. Because you will always compare yourself with somebody less than you and think you're more than what you should be. Or you'll compare yourself with somebody greater than you and you'll think of yourself as less than what you should be. Recognize God's purpose in you and affirm that. Here's what happens to Joseph. When he leans into the fact that God has picked him and he decides to obey God. Come on, takes Mary as his wife, gives Jesus the name he's supposed to give. Come on, when Jesus finishes with him... We Joseph is far more remembered, remembered than the first Joseph because he is the stepdaddy. By the way, do I have any stepdaddies in here? Do I have any adopted parents in here who say, I can't be the daddy I'm supposed to be because I'm not the birth dad? Baby, grow up. Watch Jesus. Come on now. Joseph was the adopted daddy, but because God picked him for that role, he stepped in and was the daddy that he was called to be. Here's where I end the point. I promise I'm finished now. Watch it. This is the whole Christmas story. Bethlehem was five miles south of Jerusalem. It was a little village. Didn't matter to nobody. But when Jesus was born there, he elevated the status. Today, when we think about the power that changes the universe, we don't look to D.C. We don't look to Moscow. We don't look to Beijing. We don't look to Tel Aviv. We remember Bethlehem. Because whenever Jesus enters something, he elevates it. So, so here's where I got to finish, y'all. If you realize God picked you, come on now. Lean into his grace. That 
doesn't mean that you shouldn't grow, but be careful why you're trying to grow. Come on now. If you're trying to grow so you can be more loved, throw that away. Because if Jesus loves you, you can't be any more loved than the one who's going to die for you. If you're trying to grow so you can be more accepted, throw that away. Because if Jesus says, I've included you in my family, you is as high as you can get. Come on now. If you're trying to grow so that you can be like somebody else, Forget that. Just try to be like Jesus where you are. Break free of the tyranny of the alt and slip into submission of the treasure of God's grace. Amen. Give God a hand praise. We're finished. Here's your connection card. Uh, look at the next steps where appropriate check on the response to the message. Here's what I want to challenge you. Part of dealing with the art is just being able to see how God's grace is working in your life right now. Here's what Dr. Warren concluded. She finally discovered that she was doing the very thing she was made to do. And when she stopped trying to be what other folks said she ought to be, she found joy right where she was. And later she wrote these words I thought was so profound. She asked herself, why am I starving myself when I'm not even hungry? So under the response to the message, here's what I challenge you to do. I just challenge you to write and make a commitment the next week or two. I'm going to practice being grace conscious I'm going to see the the jewels of God right where I am and celebrate God bless you